Oh, hi. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. This is where Louisa and Beverly bring you the experts, the stories, and the research impacting the cybersecurity profession today. Louisa, how are you going over there? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Beverly. So it's pretty exciting because we are recording this episode uh, with you in Australia and me in Nashville in the USA. So this is the first time we have done this separately in completely different countries. So exciting times. Now, Louisa, you've done some research, apparently. Of course I have. So we have focus this podcast on human security and so far we've talked about consumers, employees, small business, we've talked about boards but Beverly one of the aims of the podcast was always that we talk about the human within our profession so that includes showcasing the wonderful talent we have in the cybersecurity profession but also to talk about some of the key issues uh, from a workplace environment uh, angle. So I did a bit of research <laughs> and I found a report <laughs> that came out in May 2019 and we'll put the link in the show notes. But it was a global survey of cybersecurity professionals and it asked them about what are the issues in the profession in terms of things that cause stress. And when I looked at the top four, those stressful parts of the job were really about working with the business and working with employees, which I thought was quite interesting. So those top four causes of stress were things like finding out about projects after they'd happened with no security included and educating users on cyber risk. And I think part of that is that as painstaking as it can be for some people... Um, who can very elegantly talk about lots of technical detail. If you can't in unpack that in a business context, that's stressful, you know, because you've got to explain what happened and why it happened, yep. especially to executives. And that is actually um, on that list of 10 things that no, tell you that you're not suited to cyber, that's pretty much up the top that if you struggle with being able to communicate outside your own sphere that's pretty stressful right now one of the people in our industry that is clearly suited to a career in our profession is Mandy Turner and we should probably acknowledge that since we recorded this interview she's won the ASAR Cybersecurity Professional of the Year. She's absolutely going to need a new mantelpiece in her house to beautifully house all this recent recognition for her valuable contribution to the cybersecurity industry. She is one of those incredible people in our industry that gives so much back. She was also acknowledged as a fellow of the Australian Information Security Association and that was the very first tranche of fellows that ASA has acknowledged. How brilliant is that? It is, yep. She must be so delighted, especially since she's been ASA uh, branch chair for quite some time and you and I both know from our previous volunteering that it is just lovely to be acknowledged isn't it absolutely yes it is hey so let's go to the chat 
Mandy Turner. A very warm welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe. Thanks, Loisa. It's um, really good to talk to you. We're so excited you could join us in the cafe. Uh, you are OzCert's Info Security Excellence Professional of the Year this year. And uh, so big congratulations for that and following on from the 2018 winner that was Troy Hunt. So it's fantastic to see your name up there where it belongs. Yeah, it was very cool. <laughs> <laughs> that was exciting. Were you there to collect the, the award, Mandy? No, of course not. I, I, I don't do that. If someone says I'm getting an award, I don't go to the conferences. <laughs> I sent a video of my cat instead to talk about cybercrime. <laughs> well, you're such a positive presence on social media, Mandy, and Beverly and I love seeing your inspiring posts every day. And so thank you for those. They really do help motivate people um, and just encourage that positivity, which is, which is so great. I would love to start by asking you how you landed in cybersecurity. Okay, well, it's a very convoluted story, really, because I there was no intention. It wasn't an intentional thing to do. I actually, my first qualification is I have a degree in music performance and I was a musician and taught music to children who had learning difficulties for ages. So going into cyber wasn't really a thing. I don't have any degrees about cyber, um, but I worked for the Australian government for a long time and kind of fell into roles in IT security and fraud prevention digital forensics and then cybercrime intelligence and I really like computers and technology and have done since I was really little. My uncle worked for IBM a very long time ago and I remember the old punch cards and things he had which intrigued me and I used to make robots out of Lego when I was a kid and I still do but now I have a Raspberry Pi to make them work. So I just really like technology and it's something I can do and get paid for so it works for me. That's wonderful. So it's it's your um, I guess your fascination and curiosity around the technology that that um, drives you to sort of stay in cybersecurity, or are there other elements of it that you that keep you here in this industry. Well, number one, I get paid for it. So if you're going to get paid for something, you know it's an easy way of getting money. Absolutely. <laughs> but I believe that the future is digital, and my interests are more about cybercrime and crime prevention. So if crime is now going to a landscape that is digital, we need to work together to, to stop cybercrime. So the more people that are aware of what's happening in a digital landscape and how criminals are using modern technology to commit crimes, the better. So if we have ability to help people in this, whether in our professional workspaces or our volunteer workspaces or at home or with people we know, we are hardening our community against the threat of cybercrime. Yeah, that's a really great point. And, and uh, it's clear that your passion for cybercrime is strong because I understand you are actually writing a book about cybercrime. Is that right? Yes, yes, I am. I've been researching it for a couple of years. Um, and I don't really, I wasn't really intending to write a book. It was because I was researching for my own benefit, which is often what I do. And then I realized the things I'm seeing maybe should be collated for other people. So I'm working on a book on that. And it's going to be talking about demystifying cybercrime. What I see a lot of is media talking about hackers and they show pictures of hoodies and talk about dark web and deep web and scare people. What we really need to do is show the normality of it, that it's just crime, just in a different space. The history of it, um, because cybercrime goes back a long way before the word was even coined, and to show people that 
it's not really a modern thing. It's using technology to do something bad, but it's just crime. And, and how do we protect ourselves from crime? So I want to demystify it all for people. That would be great. I think we definitely need more of that. Um, and as you said, kind of not, not scaring people, but giving them the knowledge to understand it is absolutely critical. I just wanted to go back to that point you, you mentioned you had a look at the history of cybercrime. Um, have you got any examples you could share without giving away your book before its launch, but anything you can share with us? Well, yes, there was um, when Marconi was showing how you can transmit messages, he was actually hacked um, because someone wanted to prove he was actually fake and they hacked him. So that was a very, very long time ago when that happened. It was the 19th century. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, so that would be cybercrime. It's just that we didn't call it hacking or cybercrime in those days. So Marconi suffered from the first hacker, really. Um, and then if we look back in the 1970s, um, there was a Trojan horse created in 1975. So it goes back away. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was actually looking at some research our, our previous guest, Dr. Jessica Parker, had done into the word cyber yes. um, and its origins. And that was really fascinating um, because she's kind of traced it back to ancient Greece um, and, to, and then to the Romans. And then in the 40s, there was the word cyber um, netics, which was that con- control and communication. Mm, mm. So yeah, I, I think we often p- perceive that cyber is a new word, when in fact, it's, it's been around for a while. So and it's interesting to hear that that cybercrime has also been <laughs> been around for much longer than we might have thought. Yeah. And I, I think it's important that we demystify it all. Because if people are scared, as soon as you say cyber, they start getting scared. They think it's all technical. It's something we can't understand. We need to make it very simple. So people protect their houses by locking their doors. We need to teach people that cybercrime is no different. You just need to lock your digital doors, as it were, to protect yourself from cybercrime. We need to demystify it, make it normal, make people understand, raise awareness and change culture. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. And I also think you know, I did a little bit of research into this and humans have been able to understand physical risk for millions of years. You know, we, we, we have that idea of how to protect ourselves physically. So it's um, being able to translate that into the, into the virtual, into the cyber world. And I think then people will be much um, better prepared for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So my aim for this book now, there's a, um, NaNoWriMo, which is November Novel Writing Month, and you write X amount of words a day. Yeah. So it's supposed to be about a novel, but I am going to be one of the NaNoWriMo rebels and use this time to actually work on the first draft of my book. Oh, fabulous. Well, I personally cannot wait to read this book. I know it's going to be extremely well-researched, written with passion, um, and, yeah, I look forward to its its release. And are we looking at next year or yeah I would say next year I'll self-publish if I decide to publish if if I don't decide to publish I'll put it on a pdf and send it to you but yeah probably early next year wonderful look forward to that now I would love to move on to uh where you are at today in terms of I guess a little bit about your your day job what you can share what you're doing today and and then we'll move on to your volunteer work because there's a lot of that I would like to talk about as well but let's start with your day job Mandy Okay, well, I um, recently left the Commonwealth Government and I work for a university. I am the manager of the Cybersecurity Operations Centre in a university in Queensland. 
and I have an amazing team that um, support me to harden the constituents we have here against cybercrime and cybersecurity. I find it really challenging because the cohort that we are protecting is very, very diverse and it's a really interesting job. And what are the, what, can you share with us some of the challenges that diverse cohort presents um, in terms of the work that you do every day? Is it, um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you talk to that in your own words. Well, um, because as a university, we have students to start with and we can't necessarily control what they do. Yep. They have access to networks. We can't, we don't have absolute control. We can't tell them that you need to abide by this or abide by that. They're basically going to do what students are going to do. Um, we also have to support the fact that universities um, share information. That's the whole idea, sharing and learning. That is a challenge if you're trying to protect security of information because we want to lock things down, but a teaching area wants to share. So you've got that kind of idea as well. And then a university also has the professionals that, that think one way um, about policies and things, and they want to abide by a certain policy, but that policy may not actually work operationally for people who are working in a more academic field. So it's balancing the whole business needs with your constituents, what they need to do with the actual security requirements. So each area has a different requirement and a different need and a different security risk. So that's what makes it extremely challenging and really, really rewarding to work here. Yeah, I think for those people that have not worked either with or within universities in the in a security context, they maybe don't um, have that appreciation for just quite how complex that environment is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and I just wanted to go back to the the students there, and and I guess their their attitudes, um, but more specifically, whether you think that is a generational view, um, or or whether that is just, um, I guess, their state of mind as students. Um, do you have a view on that? Um, look, it wouldn't be all of them. I can't generalise, but I was at the bus stop a few weeks ago, and I young lady who, who was obviously a student here, had a post-it note on her laptop with her user ID and password on it. So obviously it makes it easier for her, but that is a pretty scary thing for security. I don't know if it's a general general thing with, with their generation. I don't know if it's a student thing. I haven't really looked into the psychology of it, but maybe it's just that they have been brought up with the internet. That's That's what they know. They have maybe a false sense of security with it or maybe they're just so busy because students these days are expected to work and study. It's They may be so busy that they don't have time to think about the security aspect. I don't really know. But um, it certainly is a concern with that cohort. Yeah, I think it definitely sounds like um, I'm sure there is someone out there that's maybe done some research that we can tap into. But I, I guess I'm just curious about when those, as we call them, digital natives come into the workforce, uh, what, what is it we can expect? So um, Actually, I, well, there was a great talk by um, Jess Williams. I think she works at Alcorn Group now. Um, she spoke recently at one of our ACER meetings about her generation, which I think is Jen said now, I'm not sure. But she was talking about the, because she is a child of the internet basically, and she was talking about the, the way they they work and, and how they think about technology. I think I might catch up with her and find out what she thinks about the security aspect. 
Yeah, that would be great. So back to your your team, Mandy, in the um, security operations center that you run. Um, are there any myths you want to bust for us about uh, the humans who work in those kind of centers and what they what it takes to work in that environment? And um, I, yeah, it would be great to get your take on that. Well, one of the things I have found and. I have spoken to people who who want to get into security and they go, oh, but I'm not a coder. And I'll explain to them that, you know, there's developers who are coders. A security environment is more about the security and the investigation and finding out why things happen. You don't have to be sitting there as a coder with your, your can of soft drink and your nerd shirt on to work in a cybersecurity space. You have to have a natural curiosity. You have to have the the want to look further into things. And you have to have an understanding of human nature because you have to work out, well, why did someone click a link or why isn't awareness working? Because there's no fully technical solution for cybersecurity. So the people that work in a cybersecurity space, they may not be people that are highly technical. They may be highly technical. They are articulate, they are expected to be able to present on awareness things. They're not inarticulate people who sit on chat forums. And I have noticed that there is this really weird perception that that's the kind of people that work in a cybersecurity operations centre. And they're not. They're extremely intelligent, extremely articulate. They may code or they may not code. It doesn't matter. And they have an insatiable curiosity as to why people get conned by cybercrime, how cyber attacks happen, and look further into how to to get resolution and mitigations. What do you think driving that perception around, you know, what what it takes to work in a security operations centre and that description you you mentioned earlier around, um, you know, can of soft drink and in the nerd T-shirt, what's driving that? Look, there's cartoons. There's been cartoons for years of that kind of thing. And, And... um, television shows that use it for satire or humour, It's, I think it's just the perceptions of people that don't really understand and don't really work in this environment, that's what they believe we all are. Mind you, I wear conference T-shirts on Fridays, so I could be one of those people myself. <laughs> and awesome. I code and I'm a gamer, so frankly I'm a stereotype. But um, I think people outside of it, that's what they see. So they go, oh, well, you're a cyber, therefore you're this type of person. I have once been told by, actually more than once, been told by someone, oh, you're really articulate. I can't believe you work in cyber. So that's kind of weird because everyone I've worked with in cyber are all extremely articulate people. So that perception, that stereotype is driven from something and I think it's more about how it's shown on television and how it's shown in, in books or, you know, public media. Yeah, yep, yeah, I agree with that. I had a I've had similar experiences where I, I've quite often found myself talking to a taxi driver about what I do and they kind of look at me and say, You don't look like you work in cybersecurity and you kind of go, Well, yeah, you know, to your point, it's it's that stereotype. Um and I and I guess it's um you know, it's down to us working in the industry today to to bust those myths and those stereotypes and, and kind of get out there and, and share what it is we do and who we are. So um, being part of the podcast is part of that. So thank you, Mandy. Um, now, I would like to move on to a subject that I know is extremely close to your heart. Um, and that is all the volunteer work that you do, which is just, it's, uh, it's amazing the work you do, Mandy, and, and um, we're so lucky to have you in this industry. But I'd like to start with why volunteer work is so important to you, if you wouldn't mind. 
Okay, well, um, there is a reason that I volunteer that drives me to volunteer, and that's because about 20-odd years ago now I escaped a domestic violence situation and I was helped by people who volunteer. Um, and I wanted to give back, but I can't give back to that community because it hurts me too much to, to work there. So I, I feel a little cowardly in that, that I can't actually help that community. But what I can do is use the skills I do have to volunteer in the community in, in the way I can, which is to promote cybercrime awareness and support people in the industry. Thank you for sharing that story, Mandy. And can I just say, I don't think it's cowardly at all. Um, the, the fact that you're you're open and talking about that experience is, is, shows a great deal of courage. And then for you to go and use, um, you, I guess, that experience to help others in a, in a different way is just incredible. So thank you for that. And maybe we could talk a little bit about what you do in the cybersecurity community. I know you're branch uh, executive at the Brisbane branch of the Australian Information Security Association. Uh, so what does that entail and, and what kind of culture are you driving? Well, um, I've been I've been a volunteer at ASA for quite some time and took over branch chair in 2016, I think it was. And I try to promote a culture of, of real diversity and support in our our local area. So when I talk about diversity, I don't talk about gender. I'm talking about true diversity of everything, culture, background, skills, knowledge, age, everything. And I wanted our local ASA members to feel supported, to to feel that they are in a safe area, that any presentations we do cater to all different people and to promote people who may want to get into presentations but don't feel that they have the experience to actually come and present to, to our group so that they can get an idea of how to present. They're in front of a friendly group who will be supportive and for them to gain confidence. So my aim has always been to, to help change culture of people in information security and help make them a stronger, more supportive unit. And how do you think we're doing today Mandy, just in general about, um, I guess, how, how welcoming is the cybersecurity culture to outsiders today and what more can we do about that? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I think it is improving, but there's one thing that I find is, is still an issue and it's driven by some people that believe their own legend, I think, where they'll look down on people and say they're not tech, they're not technical, they're not tech. Um, and that worries me. But I think we're doing a lot to to change things. So Jackie Lestelle with the Australian Women's Security Network, um, I know Jackie Kernow also works a lot with women in technology. So there's people looking about breaking the barriers for women, which is excellent. Um, I think we're also making a cyber career more, more available and accessible to, to all sorts of people. Um, I was reading a blog post by a blind developer recently and it, it just intrigued me because I don't know how he does it. But I think we are becoming more accessible because we're awareness is being raised by more people. So we're learning to be more welcoming and, and being less discriminatory of our own people, I think. So I believe we are 
getting better at this. Yeah, I agree, Maddie. And obviously, there's the, there's the great work that you're also doing with the with the ASA branch in Brisbane to make sure that those kind of environments are, are welcoming and inclusive, and and that's fantastic. So thank you for doing that. I also wanted to talk about the fact that you've established a cyber century mentoring. Yes. Uh, and, and if you could tell us a little bit about what that is, what that means to you, um, and also feel free to shout out any help that you might need with that organization. Okay. Well, so the history of that is it goes back late last year when um, a colleague and friend of mine, Lana Tosic from New Zealand, and I were discussing that there needs to be some kind of initiative to help people find mentors and to help support mentors in the information security industry. And that's not that's whether you're a, a security person, a coder, a developer, work in cybercrime, work in intelligence, work in police, whatever. Or you're a student that works there or you want to change careers. And we were saying it's difficult to find good mentors and it's difficult for people to approach someone to ask to be a mentor. So we decided we'd, we'd work out something to help that. And so we established the, this association. And what we do is we ask for interest from people who wish to be mentors and we just have a look at what they do and and find out about their reputation in the community. If we feel that they're satisfactory, we'll add them to our database as mentors. And then people who wish to be mentored will approach us and we will map them up to that mentor and do an email introduction. We also monitor things. So if the person who's being mentored doesn't feel it's working or the person doing mentoring feels it isn't working, we can intervene and go, look, here's someone else that that may be better suited for this situation. And we also look at providing support to the people being mentored as well, like this is what you should expect from the mentoring. And we support the mentors with providing information on, on how they can support the people they mentor and also support themselves. And what do you think it takes to be a good mentor um, I know you know a lot of people will kind of throw into conversation oh yeah I, I mentor people what does that mean to actually be an effective mentor I think you need to be flexible because each situation is different so you can't go a mentor is this this and this because it depends on what the person needs so the first thing you need to do is be very adaptable you need to also really listen so you can understand what the person is wanting because sometimes people will say they want something but that isn't really what they need as well so you need to be able to to look at what they're actually saying and what it actually means so you need to be a very very good listener and you also need to be someone who can look at it the mentoring situation almost um, subjectively not objectively because you need to distance yourself from it because it's not about you as a mentor it's about the person you're looking after and you also have to assess what is it they really need do they want to be networked so do they want to meet people is it that they want to develop themselves their behaviors is it that they want to learn more skills is it that they're looking to understand how their skills transfer to a workplace so you have to look at all those things as well so I think the prime part of being a mentor is being very very adaptable to the situation you're in that's great advice Mandy thank you for that because I I think some people sort of get into mentoring because they think they should but I, I think it's also important that they you know, recognize what what's required of them and assess whether that is the right thing for them as well. Um, and I think some people can be great coaches versus doing doing mentoring. So um, I've seen some fantastic coaches out there in the industry. And so, yeah, and there is, uh, I guess, a difference in that skill set as well. Yeah, I, I believe there is because mentoring to me is a more protective situation. It's more you're looking after your protege. Um you're helping them in in this job. You're helping them look for jobs. You're you're supporting them 
they go to you, you know, because something about the industry's upset them or they don't feel that they have the confidence or they also share their, their successes with you. Whereas a coach is more about what can you do, how do we apply it, how do we make it better? But a mentor is more a personal thing. So while you you would remain kind of outside of it so you don't get too involved yourself, you are actually supporting them on more of a personal level as well. Yep, that's a really good point and, and good clarification as well. So, Mandy, you are also a justice of the peace. <laughs> um, so I'd love to hear more about how that came about and, and what made you do that and what it entails as well. Okay, so my husband had to get the qualifications for his workplace and because I have an insatiable curiosity and always need to learn, I decided I was going to sign up to be a justice of the peace. So I signed up and paid for the online training myself and sat the exam and registered as a justice of the peace. So um, a justice of the peace in Queensland mainly is used to to sign uh, copies or to sign stat decks and things like that. They also can issue warrants if the police ask them to. So they have quite a responsibility um, in the community. That's great. So being a, a justice of, of the peace, you're also um, able to, to contribute to the community um, in that way, which is which is fantastic. And I guess um, also looking after the integrity of information, we might say. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> which which we know definitely links back to, to the cybersecurity world. Uh, I would also love to hear, because um, I know that you have an opinion on this, um, around cybersecurity recruiting in terms of the skills shortage, whether we've got one or we haven't. So, yeah, what, what's, your, what's your view on that one? Okay, so this is probably controversial to a lot of people, but I don't believe we necessarily have a cyber skills shortage. I think there's an issue with how we recruit and what we're looking for when we advertise. So the position I'm in at the moment, for example, I really love the job and I seem to be doing okay. My team haven't mutinied on me yet. Um, but the job advert itself asked for certifications that I do not have. So I have seen a lot of adverts on whether it's in the newspaper or online where, where recruiters, so it's re- recruiting firms and maybe HR areas, I don't know who dictate this, but they ask for so many skills that you'd have to be like 180 to have done it all. They're asking for the impossible. They're asking for unicorns. They're also expecting you to have so many certifications that you'd have to be a millionaire to afford. So I think they need to be looking at behaviours. When you're in a team, you can be taught certain things, but it's really hard to change a person's innate behaviour. So what we're looking for are people that that can understand things, people that are adaptable, people who are articulate, people who are curious about their environment and want to help. They are. That's ideal characteristics of a person that work in our in our industry so instead of going we're looking for people that can code every single language has ever been invented and has every certification from every industry and has been a developer for 20 years and worked in security for 30 and you know it they should be looking at behaviors because you can teach things and every job you go to there's going to be new systems that you've never used before if you have the ability to transfer your knowledge to that that is success. So there has been many studies where it says that women are less likely to apply for a job 
where they can't tick, even if one box can't be ticked, they won't apply. Um, my husband also will not. If he feels he, he misses just one thing out of a list of 80, he will not apply because he'll go, no, no, I, I can't do that. So I think people, when, when recruiting advertisements are written, need to think about that. Stop asking for ridiculous, impossible things and start thinking about the type of people they want to work there. What kind of skills do they want them to bring to the job? Do they want them to be able to write well? Do they want them to be able to speak well? Do they want them to be able to understand information fast? What is it they want from the person? The, the other knowledge will come, but they need to actually get the right people for the jobs and, and need to ask them for transferable skills, not expect them to have every certification and, and degrees and things like that. Yeah, and I'm wondering, you know, the... <laughs> There was some research done by Security in Depth recently in Australia. Um, I think they had about 1,800 respondents. And, and of those, 63% had no dedicated cybersecurity um, specialists on staff. And so, you know, I'm wondering if when they do finally get that budget to go and hire someone to look after their cybersecurity and they've got that over the line, are they just asking for everything because they've literally got one headcount? So, you know, that wondering if that could be driving it. There could also, I guess, be that lack of understanding from an HR sort of perspective as to what um, a cybersecurity professional needs to have. Um, but also we've heard, and I don't know if you think this is still happening, that we're also, as cybersecurity professionals, writing job descriptions in our own image, listing the skills we have and the certs we have. Do you think that's still happening? Yeah, I do. I do still think that's happening. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's totally, it's like an unconscious bias in a way. But I, I do think that's happening. Instead of looking at what is the job, what does the job need, they're, they're just cloning themselves. So, yes, I do think that's happening still. Yeah, so there's a few areas for, <laughs> to be worked on, I think, in that space. Um, and and I guess if if we look to the future, and not just in terms of recruiting and the skills that we need, but mm. where do you see us in as far ahead as you care to, to predict? <laughs> um, where do you see us in the future and what do you think will we'll look like as an industry? I think that... Um unless we self-employed with our technology, that, that things will be further technologically driven. We have Internet of Things. Everything is interconnected. I wanted to play my, my Switch console the other night and I had to upgrade the console firmware and upgrade my game firmware because everything's moving so fast. So I think in the future that it, there's going to be so many things driven by technology. I mean, it's bad enough now when you go to a checkout and they – Automatic cash register isn't working because of whatever reason and people have trouble working out change because they're so reliant on technology. I think people are going to become even more reliant on technology. There's going to be more emphasis on crime driven by technology and I think it's going to be both an exciting and a scary world. And do you think we've passed the point of no return when it comes to um, disconnecting? We often hear that as a, um, I'm, I'm talking more specifically around, I have heard it said, and I'm going <laughs> to quote my, my, my dad doesn't use the internet. He's like, well, if I'm not on the internet, then I, I can't, I can't experience any, any bad stuff, um, which, which I think 
in in hindsight, you know, he also has to rely on my mum, who is on the internet. Um, and then there was also the example uh, of, I was listening to Smashing Security a couple of weeks back and um, Jack from Darkneck Diaries covered a story about uh, ransomware hitting a state in the US and they actually just unplugged in response to that ransomware. Is that going to be an option in the future? You know, I'm not sure because I think that everything is going to be so connected that that isn't something that can be done. My husband and I sometimes joke that we're going to become hermits and go and live in a cave. But everything is so connected now. Everything is just, I don't think there is, there will be a way that we can just unplug. Yeah, and, and I guess then how our profession aligns to that and whether or not there is a skill shortage today. But when we look to the future and, and what we'll need to be doing, do we... Should we be focusing our, our efforts on enabling people outside of cybersecurity to build security into their everyday lives in some way? Or should we be focusing on bringing more professionals into the industry? Yeah, I think because everything is digital, everyone has to use it. Um, I believe that we should be supporting everyone. I was actually talking to one of my team this morning about my views on we should be teaching kids from infancy about good cyber health, like online use and not oversharing, just as we do from infancy about how we cross the road and how we eat and how we wipe our hands because the future is going to be digital and we need to ensure that we've enabled our people in generations to come to, to use online and technology safely. So it's not just about focusing on a certain lump of people who are really into tech, but it's focusing on the whole generations to come and how they can be better supported using technology. Yeah, and I, I think that's the only way we're going to be ready for that uh, that future as well is just if, if everybody has some knowledge um, to be able to, to make decisions about their online risk and what they do and what they share, what they don't share and how they go about their business securely, then, yeah, we're going to be busy enough in the cybersecurity industry. Absolutely. So I think that's the minimum baseline we're going to need to to be able to support that fully interconnected future. Mm, absolutely. So, um, Mandy, are there any other call-outs you want to share with the cybersecurity community? Anything we need to be doing more of? Anything we need to do less of or what we should keep doing? I think we should be collaborating more. I know that there's issues with collaboration through could be legislation that stops it or policies in businesses. But where we can share, I believe we should. One of the things I do on my Twitter account, for example, is share cybercrime information, whether it's something that I think that we should be doing or whether I'm sharing it from someone else. Um, I use my Twitter account a lot for cybercrime awareness. I believe we should be collaborating. Um, I know that my colleagues over at Auscert do a lot of that. They actually have public blog where they talk about a security issue and how it applies to people so anyone can see that. They don't have to be members. And I know that the work that the Australian government's doing with the Joint Cybersecurity Centres, they're encouraging more industry collaboration. But I think collaboration needs to be done both on a localised level and further, further afield because criminals collaborate with far more ease than we do. So if we ever want to, to get anywhere in this fight, we need to collaborate more. That's a great shout out, Mandy. And yeah, I, I couldn't agree more about that. There's been some great work done, as you mentioned, the JCSCs um, and, and as you mentioned, the great work also does. But yeah, we definitely, definitely need more of that. 
Mandy, I'm so sad that our chat's already come to coming to an end. Um, how can people uh, follow you? You mentioned your Twitter account. You're pretty active on there. How do we find you on Twitter? Yes, I'm Empress Bat on Twitter. Wonderful. That one's easy to find. Yes. <laughs> um, or look for Louisa, who is herself on Twitter, and find me as one of her followers. Love that. And what about any other ways to get in touch? Do you um, Are you one of those people that you only accept LinkedIn from people you know, or are you happy to accept? On LinkedIn, I'm, I'm happy as I will accept people if I have done a check on them. I'll have a look at open source to see what if they are who they say they are. Um, also, if they come recommended from somebody else. So I'm just Amanda Jane on LinkedIn with a little flower next to my name to try and stop bots contacting me. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> and I always know I'm going to get a positive post when I see that, see your name and that flower. So keep up the awesome work with that, Mandy. It's been an absolute joy chatting to you. Thank you so much for joining us in the Cybersecurity Cafe. And hopefully once you publish your book, we would love to get you back and, and hear more about that. Absolutely, Louisa. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Mandy. Bye-bye. Bye. Mandy Turner, I had no idea the, the amazing contribution that she has made to our profession. Exactly, yeah. And it's so great to see that she's been recognised. I think that's that's absolutely fantastic. I think it also raises a really important point in that we do have so many people volunteering in our profession actually. Um, and Beverly, do you have any any thoughts or anything you wanted to say about that? I think that certainly in my time in cybersecurity, you know, it is a very generous profession. People are incredibly generous with their time. They're in it to they're in it to do good, to help people. Yep. And, you know, helping people stay safe online and have a positive digital experience is what people are really trying to help um, get society to do. I was also interested in her book. Can you just unpack that a little bit for me? It's just crime. So that cyber in front of it is, uh, I guess, can, can somewhat be misleading in a way. I thought the bit about the history of cybercrime, the fact that it's been around for a lot longer than I expected was a, was a really interesting point. And, and Beverly, you and I have chatted about this when we've talked about a future podcast we'd like to do, uh, just in terms of the fact that technology has always enabled crime. And, you know, we've had telephones for a long time and people have used telephones to to scam people. And now we have so much more technology and so much more reach for the criminals. <laughs> I'm not going to say cyber criminals to utilize. So, yeah, a fascinating subject. And we definitely need to unpack that in a future podcast. The flip side, of course, is that, um, as as we know, with Ken Gamble's discussion, that the challenge with cybercrime is catching them. The digital footprint is so much harder and unless we use both normal policing techniques and digital footprint, that is the challenge, is that, yep, it's absolutely the same crime and we shouldn't be glorifying it. The reality is they're much harder to catch and uh, they're much harder to 
put away and retrieve your money and all those sorts of things. That's all we've got time for today. And thanks for listening. And don't forget to give us your feedback. We have had lots of great suggestions from you about what you'd like on the podcast and we're going to bring those to life for you so please don't hesitate to give us those suggestions because uh, this is your show and it always will be thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity cafe podcast be sure to subscribe for future episodes and for more information visit cybersecuritycafe.com.au and find us on twitter at cyber sec cafe